Hi, guys. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Perithians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Thank you. Thank you. My dear friend Alan Hirsch says that at best, 80% of our theology is correct, 20% is incorrect. The problem is we don't know which the 20% really is. And so we have to come to a text like this with enormous amount of humility. Meryl and I came to faith. Sorry, Meryl's not here. She struggled her way through this morning, supporting me up an anthem in a thousand oaks. But by the time we got home at about 2.30, she re- she's, her, her health has kind of been petering along. And so much apologies from her. Dana's not here because little Delta has decided that it's time to be sick. So apologies for two of our leaders. But back to Alan's point. We just don't know which 20% is wrong. And so we have to come with an enormous amount of humility and I think teachability to say, you know, God can and must teach me new ways. Meryl and I got saved into the charismatic renewal of the 60s and 70s. And so we were saved into this. This is what was normal Christianity for us in those days. We didn't know that some people didn't do this. We, we just were completely astounded when we discovered that to be true. And so Yaroslav Pelikan, the theologian that I'm enjoying reading, says this is a hinge passage of transition. This is such an important one. So I'm going to dare... And I'm not a teacher in the biblical sense of the word. Um, but I'm going to dare to just walk us through this passage a little bit and hopefully get us into the right conversations and into the right questions. Now, if you are prejudiced, in other words, you had a really bad experience, someone walked up to you and shundied their way over you and completely overwhelmed you and were insensitive and they prophesied something that just were not true. I see you had a troubled childhood. No, I didn't. My mom and dad actually really loved each other. And um, whatever the case may be, you're like, you know what? I'm done with this. Well, what about giving it another chance? What about letting the legitimate break in on the illegitimate? There is very little abuse in Christianity like this. And But we, we can avoid it. We can dismiss it, or we can say, oh God, please teach us your ways. So number one, what are we going to do when the day of Pentecost had come, verse 1a? I'm going to split it up into two little versions just for a moment. When the day 
had come. You know why that verse excites me or that point excites me? Have you guys got me? Here we go. When that day had fully come, it's very consistent with Paul writing in Philippians 1.10 in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son. And I'll tell you why. Because it tells me God is faithful and true. There is an overarching note that God is sovereign. That there is this great agenda before the beginning and after the end. And God is writing that great redemptive narrative during that time. And it gives me incredible peace that God is faithful and God is true in the fullness of time. This wasn't a spontaneous moment where the father sat with Jesus who's just arrived with all of his scars and he says to him, "Um, what do you think? You think now? You think we should send the Holy Spirit now? Yeah, I don't think so. I think let them pray a little more. Why don't we try next week? There is a deep-weighted sense of the eternal breaking in on the temple by God's timeline. Now, you might ask me, as you should, but Chris, what happens when we screw up? Well, I'm so grateful to God for His providence that He takes these broken pieces and He brings it and He makes it one. Many years ago, when I was your age, I heard a preacher man tell this story and it stuck with me and it made sense. He said, there was a Persian rug maker And what he would do is he would sit and he would make his beautiful Persian rugs with all of the beauty and the tapestry and the creativity and the design. And his little boy would play at his feet and, um, you know, do what little boys do, playing around, playing around with the yarn or whatever, whatever. And then the little boy said, hey, what about me? Can I have a turn? And the dad doesn't say, no, you silly boy, you're only eight years old. What do you know about weaving? He puts him on his lap and the little boy puts his hands on his dad's hands as his dad weaves this beautiful Persian rug. But then comes the day and the dad knew it would come where the little boy would say, can I do this by myself? The dad says, sure. He moves off the little chair and he puts the boy there, the little stool, and the boy starts doing it. And does it surprise us that it really is messy and ugly? Now, this is the beauty of the story, and apparently it's true to the Persian rug makers at that time. He would never undo what his son had done. He would simply weave perfection around his son's imperfection. So when you and I look at the rug, we will not see which part the son did and which part the father did, because perfection is woven around imperfection. I can think of no greater illustration for God's providence where He comes, where we mess up, He comes and weaves perfection around that. When the day had come. It also tells us, dear friends, that God keeps His promise. This beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. You say, well, hang on, Chris, hang on, hang on. God's promised some things and they haven't happened yet. Yep, from Malachi to Matthew was about 500 years. God's timing might not be ours. God's methodology might not be ours. But of this, we can be certain that He is faithful and He is true when the time or the day had come. Well, what about Pentecost? Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. It's something we really, as kind of Westerners, Gentiles, don't really understand the weight and wonder of the Passover. We kind of understand it with Jesus. But 50 days, hence Pentecost, 
is really the feast of weeks. I was reading a rabbi to help me understand the Jewish mindset. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. The feast of weeks is definitely not Pentecost. He couldn't equate a high moment in the Jewish calendar with what we talk about and practice. <coughs> but the feast of weeks is the second of three solemn feasts. Forgive the technical things. It'll make sense in a moment. But at the feast of weeks, all Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem to attend the festivities to offer up sacrifices. Isn't God's timing perfect? Jews by ethnicity, but Macedonians and Persians and whoever by culture. God was teeing up a moment to let his son's declaration from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, I will do it in a moment at the Feast of Weeks when all the young Jewish men are here from all over the world, the known world, the Mediterranean world, and they will encounter this glorious Holy Spirit and be scattered. Don't you love that? Don't you love the fact that God, in this case, Targets, the, targets these young men who come to Israel thinking it's going to be a financial transaction. They're going to come, they're going to pay the offerings, they're going to offer their offerings, and that God comes with all wisdom and beauty and He breaks in on them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The second thing we see in verse 1b is they were all together in one place. Now we've really spoken a lot about that in in chapter one. But I want to mention it again because once again, the high emphasis is a sense of usness. Remember when Dana preached on Philippians and I reiterated that last week, but how rampant individualism, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher says, has so stoked our world that we don't actually know what usness looks like. That's why Meryl, as a marriage and family therapist, is as busy as she wants to be. Caleb, the same. Because how do you bring two people to become one when the highest value is me? No can do, homie. No can do. You gotta die. Yesterday afternoon, we, we try on Sabbath. We're really not that good at it. I hung up the hammock at home. Meryl lay in there with one of Tian's books, some fantasy novel or something. I'm in my little study area. I've got the commentaries out on this piled high on my desk and watching the World Cup rugby. Never shall the two meet. Meryl is reading fantasy in a hammock. I'm at my desk with my commentaries and World Cup rugby. How can that marriage be a success? Well, it's quite simple. You just die. You just die to yourself. It means the things that matter to you for a harmonious, unified marriage is born by our ability to die well. Here is this incredible picture of them being all together as if one people. And that is, and I won't go into it, some theologians argue it's the anti-Babel. But what happened in Babel, as you know, with men trying to build a, a, a tower to kind of reach into God and God scattered them because he said, where people agree on anything, they can do it. And he scattered them with many languages. This is the anti-Babel where God does give them many tongues and he does scatter them, but this time for the kingdom's glory. All right, now we're getting a little tricky because the Bible says, like a mighty wind and like tongues of fire. Suddenly the sound like the blowing of a violent wind, a violent wind, the sound of, came from heaven 
and filled the whole house where they were sitting and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. Why is this important? Well, it's curious. I've read biblical account, I mean the historical accounts of this happening in our time. But that in itself is not compelling. Why did Luke, the Greek doctor, write this in? When I look at this, dear friends, what I see is four of the six symbols that make up the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Rodman Williams in his Renewal Theology says, the Holy Spirit is represented with wind. And you know why? Where's the, oh, there's no guitar. Yes, there is a guitar tonight. Okay, stand by. Stand by. I won't. Tyler, why are you so tall? Okay, you'll hear my voice because I'm loud. So if I put this up, for those of you who've been with us from the beginning, I've used this before. If I said to you guys, what does a guitar look like? Oh, you say, that's easy. It's kind of a cute, quite voluptuous shape instrument. It's got a really big belly button and there's strings that go up a really long, like a, a Messiah woman, you know, with lots of, of, of uh, things around their neck. And then like hair that, that does all sorts of things. Oh, no, absolutely not. These people say, see, you don't understand. This is what the instrument looks like. Yeah, it is a little voluptuous, but it really is shiny. And what you can do with this instrument, make a really good rhythmic sound. These guys are absolutely not. What you get, that's what you get. That's what you get. Oh, absolutely not, says the six foot seven giant. Because you know, when I look at it, this is what I see. I mean, I, I see like distance and color and beauty and the, the short little I won't mention any names. Standing below says my grandson, Papa, what is that instrument you're holding? Because I don't know, it's got like a cord. Is it like a, a poor patrol person? You know, what, what, what is that? What are we describing? The same instrument, we're describing it from different angles. Where we get into trouble is we say my angle is the right angle, the others don't make sense. God, the Holy Spirit, is way more complicated. I'm getting back to my is way more complicated than one definition could describe. Way more complicated. So he's not just wind. No, but I experienced him as wind. Hallelujah. He's not just wind. He's not just fire. John the Baptist said, and he will, when he comes, he will baptize you with water and fire. He's not just water. He's not just a dove. He's not just a seal or oil. In this case, Luke says, I want you to understand the Holy Spirit is here. Look, he is like a wind, a ferocious wind. He is like a fire. He is poured out like water. He is on the people to prophesy, oil. He's all four of those to show you this is legitimately the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you, as we go through this and discuss it in the weeks which lie ahead, would you mind opening your heart up to letting God the Holy Spirit come in any way He chooses? Remember, He came as fire with Moses, like a burning bush. Let Him come to you the way He chooses to reveal Himself. We'll get to why in just a moment. How are you doing, everyone? 
Okay. Now, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4a. Now, why is that important? Well, remember Jesus said this. He said in just a few days' time, He said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this chapter, and this is really important, this chapter doesn't use the word baptism with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say it. Now, some denominations say, and we'll get to tongues in just a moment, well, if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you will speak in tongues. But now that's a little problem because the baptism with the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this text, but tongues is. What's happened? We've taken a face of the guitar and we've made it the whole guitar. Have you ever wondered how the writer tries to represent God coming as the Holy Spirit in that moment? Let me show you how beautiful it is. John said Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and Jesus said the same. That word baptism means immersed. We had such a cool evening on Monday night. Were you Robert, Trent? So on Monday night after our leader's dinner, he comes up to me, says, well, actually Meryl gives me the, you know, and I know it means come here now. And uh, in, in the army you do this, come here now. And so I knew it was one of those moments. So I come across, Robert says, listen, I wanna be baptized. I said, sure, when do you want to do it? Now. <laughs> 10 o'clock on a Monday night, freezing cold. I said, okay. He gets three of his mates, and thank the Lord he asks Stu to baptize him. <laughs> I was merely an observer of such a grand occasion. Were I to be called upon for such a noble task, I would have gone home, got my 3.2 website uh, uh, thing, and, and, and I would really have been ready for action. It was freezing. I watched men quiver as Robert set out to describe what the moment meant to him. The wind blew and some of the brothers were in their boxes. No names mentioned. And then they went out there and I watched God come upon him with the baptism of water. And then Stu, who'd only been baptized as an eight-year-old, said, actually, I want to be baptized again. So Robert stayed, well, not baptized again. And, and so Robert stood there and baptized him, and Kyle was with him, limping and all. A great and glorious moment. The three of them knew that baptism was not a splash on a forehead. 10 o'clock on a Monday night when it's cold, it's very convenient. But if baptism means immersion, plunged, under, envelope, drenched, then that's what happened to them. And if that's what it means, it means that the Holy Spirit wants to come and immerse us, plunge us under, envelop us, drench us with Himself. When I was praying early this morning, I was reminded of how desperate people get for the Holy Spirit's presence. The recent one in Asbury, I followed with keen interest. And I suppose for me, as to this point, that was most powerful was a couple from Argentina, I believe, heard about what God was doing there, sold their car, the only car they had to buy the tickets to come and be where God is. That's when you know the deep hunger and the deep desire and the deep longing, I want to be where God is. I want to be baptized, immersed, soaked, drenched by the Holy Spirit. 
But lest we get ourselves up our, I won't use a British expression of knickers in a knot, in case we did, why, how else is this described? Well, it is described in the first verse that he came from heaven. Now, what I'm trying to do is break the mindset that one phrase describes it all. It says, he came from heaven. It said, he came on them. Like he came on Jesus when he was baptized. It says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Every corner of their being, as it was in the house, so it was in them. You know why it scares us? Because the Holy Spirit will go to where our sin is and we don't want to let our sin go. So I will keep the Holy Spirit at a distance. Splash me, but don't immerse me. Touch me, but don't fill me. Because if you fill me, John the Baptist said, he will come with water and fire. And again, great moments of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. It is invariably categorized by wailing on their knees, I am a sinner. God, forgive me. That's why we're scared. One, in case I'm found out. Two, in case God wants it. Baptized, come from, come on, filled with. Then he speaks later on about being poured out. His spirit is poured out like water. He's poured out. What is, I think, God trying to say to us? It's all of these things. If you come from a Pentecostal tradition, baptism of the Holy Spirit is held with the highest regard, one of the cornerstone theologies. But I wonder if it's not defining this too narrow and too tight when he wants to come on, when he wants to fill, when he wants to pour out. And then if all of that wasn't enough, it says the Spirit enabled them. All of these moments help describe what transpired in that moment. That's the invitation. Do you want God, the Holy Spirit, to meet you there? I do. I do. I can stand up here and tell you many, many, many stories of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And for some, it's sheer laughter. There was a little boy who was abused. Never forget this in the church we led in South Africa. And it was um, at a particular time when the Holy Spirit visited around the world. And I watched this little boy at a corner, corner I think it was five. His story was tragic, his abuse, desperate. And I saw the Holy Spirit come upon him, ladies and gentlemen. He had no foreknowledge. This is not an adult pro program to be in Pentecostal. But he lay on his back and he wept. And as he lay, he started hovering like that and wept 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 as God the Holy Spirit was healing this little boy's broken heart. When he comes, he comes with water and fire. When he comes, he comes with the wind to blow into the corners. Why am I hungry for him? Because I want him to heal the brokenhearted. I read in my devotions this morning about the woman with the issue of blood. How desperate was she to touch Jesus' garment? How desperate was she pushing through the crowd, breaching every cultural norm and protocol to reach his garment? And he said, it's better for you that I go because another is coming and you shall do more than I have done. 
I don't mind which one of these ways in which the Holy Spirit came you resonate with most. But my ask of you, can we be hungry? Can we be like those people in the upper room? Please, Holy Spirit, please come and invade our soul. Overcome the obstacles of our own uncertainty and fear and attract us, draw us into a place of intimacy with you. If it means to be baptized, immersed, fully soaked, wrapped around, then let it be that. If it means to be filled with you, where every corner of my soul is unprotected by my own insecurities, I let you come in. Please, please. There's a whole world of spiritual encounter that's awaiting us, not for ourselves, but to give away. When it speaks about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, for the common good. It's so that others can be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. I'm asking you, as I ask myself, and that was my opening prayer as we drove down from a thousand oaks, took me an hour, 40 minutes or something. I was just saying, oh God, I'm, 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 I long for you. And I long for you in this community. Honestly, as a, as a pops, do you mind? I've experienced this. I haven't seen the dead raised, but I've seen about everything else. I've seen and I've been in meetings where you cannot move because the presence of God is so thick. And it's not a scary fear. It's an overwhelming sense, Dan, God is in the house I've had to lead those meetings and I have no idea what to do next I've watched the presence of God come on people in the most amazing way knowing things about them that no one else knew but obviously we did as a pastoral privilege and watching God pour himself on them pour himself pour himself on such a, a famine filled heart God wants to use you and he wants to use me. Not here only. Sundays are fun. I enjoy Sundays. But it's way more compelling when God enables me in the quiet normality of my world, in my role as a husband. Every now and again, I have to come before God and say, God, can you teach me by your spirit? Can you enable me to husband Meryl? I need you to fill me. Fill me, fill me to overflowing. There's a deep hunger. Let's just talk briefly about tongues. Again, I think something that's been poorly understood by denominational bias. Now again, remember what I said. I'm very open to you saying, oh Chris, I don't believe what you believe. You know what? This is the best I got. But you might be absolutely right. I might be wrong on that point, and that's okay. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard it in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who were speaking Galileans, how 
then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And Claire did a fabulous job. I dare not butcher it. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Well, obviously some said, making fun of them, they've had too much wine. What is the evidence of God the Holy Spirit moving amongst them? Well, let's talk about tongues for just a moment. This passage is obviously a kind of tongue. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, it says there are different tongues, plural. This is one kind. This is where God gives someone who has no foreknowledge the ability to be able to speak a language that the other person can understand. See Peter Wagner in his story around the book of Acts tells of an American couple who were ministering in Bolivia and God, without teaching them by lesson, gave them Spanish with an Argentinian accent. Like that. My friend Mike Hanser, who is with the Lord now, he told me he was in a meeting and there was a tongue given. And it sounded like weird. You know, those of us from the charismatic era, we had like the Shandai generation. You know, every tongue sounded the same. Everyone sounded the same, except that night it was different. And obviously then people, even in charismatic circles, turn around, look around and say, oh, what is this? There was no public interpretation. Ah, well, I guess it wasn't the real thing. At the end of the meeting, a Catholic father walked in his habit, walked across to them and introduced himself. Hi, my name is Father So-and-so. Can I just ask, where did you learn that? I said to the man, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you are speaking an extremely rare dialect from Nepal and only three of us or five of us in the world know that language and you were declaring the wonders of God in that language. How did you know? That's this tongue. It's a fun tongue because it brings mystery and surprise to the hearer. How on earth does that happen? But that's not the only tongue, because there's also the angelic tongues of 1 Corinthians 13.1. We're not really sure, I don't think, what that means. I've been in a meeting once where we felt like the angelic tongues, and listen, I'm pretty cerebral about these things. I'm not a charismatic nutter. But I happened to be on the stage that night of 5,000 people at our annual conference back in the day. And out of nowhere, there were these tongues that came and we all looked around to try and find out who it was, but we couldn't locate it anywhere other than this must be what angelic tongues are like. And they were harmonious in perfect pitch. And it was so compelling, we were drawn to join and we sang 5,000 voices, sang together without instrument in a prolonged way as we partnered with the angelic tongues. Amazing one-off, oh, I would, that I could experience that again. You may be asking, well, Chris, what what good is all this? I don't know. But it's almost like God says, hang on, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna get you to peep through heaven. I'm gonna just separate the curtain for just a moment and I want you to look and tell me what you see and experience because this is what it will be like. Eons of ages worshiping together in perfect harmony. Can you imagine all the musical styles, all the musical voices and accents? It will not necessarily be Bach or Beethoven or uh, Chopin. I don't know what it will be like. But the angelic tongues will be sung 
and we will join them in glorious harmony. Nothing to fear, but an incredible privilege to enjoy. Thirdly, you with me? Tongues and interpretation. We know that if you've been around a little bit, it's in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, where it speaks about a tongue that gets spoken and someone that gives an interpretation. That's a different tongue. That's a different tongue. It's not the first tongue of a language unknown. It's not the angelic tongue. That's a different tongue. This is, once again, a third version, if you wish, of it. And that is where a tongue gets given. It's always a bit awkward, except in a multicultural church like Dubai. Rob leads a church of, I think, 45 cultures. So to hear another accent or another style of speech is not that weird. So if someone gets up and gives a tongue, people say, oh, that's another accent or language. But for us, as cool and I'm Eastern <laughs> Coast of Masons, that is super weird. But it's real and it's true and it happens. You know, it's interesting when we minister prophetically. I watch people move from rejection to quiet interest to leaning in. Have you got a word for me? Could, could God want to speak to me? Does, does God know me? Does God know my address? Does God know my story? Sometimes when you pray for people, there is a tongue that comes and you begin to speak that tongue and then the tongue eases up and you start interpreting that tongue. Then fourthly, they're the tongues that Paul speaks about. He says, I pray in tongues more than all of you. That's a different tongue again. I love my prayer language. I was 18 when I started praying in that kind of tongue. And I have to tell you, I cannot get by without it. Leading this community and the global church planting thing, there are things that I have no ability, no matter how much wisdom I have or do not have, how to answer that. And I will walk the back bay, which is my favorite prayer place, and I will just speak in tongues. When someone approaches, I quieten it or I act like I'm on the phone or another foreigner, you know. And then they go and then I start praying again because actually Paul says, my mind gets in the way of my spirit. My spirit wants to cry out to God in words that I don't even have language for. So can I pray in that tongue? Well, you might be asking right now, is that, is that everyone's thing? I, I would like it to be. Not because it's weird, but because it's very intimate. It's the love language that I experience with my father, and I will invariably say something like, his father, I don't know how to pray right now. This situation, I've got one in London, I've got a flight to London in 10 days' time. I, I don't know how to solve this. I, I don't know what to do. Stavros has sent us something from Cyprus and the overwhelming increase of refugees coming. And I'm saying, God, we don't know what to do. And so I bypass my mind with all of its complexities because this is not a moment of one plus one equals two. My mind can sort that out. This is a moment of one plus one equals three and my mind cannot sort that out. And then an interesting last one. 
where it says one of the, a couple of the theologians speak about ecstatic tongues. I thought it was a fun one, actually. No, we just don't actually know what to do. You're just like, wow! You just, there's this kind of expression of sheer delight. Have you seen that with the mother and the child? Have you, have you seen that? Uh, maybe a husband or wife, if you've been doing another tour of duty in wherever, Afghanistan, and you come back and there's just this ecstatic shriek. You know, it's not like, hello, dear. <laughs> you know, God's a God of order. Hello, dear. So nice to see you. Nine months we've been fighting a war and I am delighted to see you. There is that ecstatic joy. I don't have words for it. I'm just going to shriek it out. Now I know for most of us, either by personality or church culture, the idea of an ecstatic tongue is very uncomfortable. I'm not even sure it's necessarily a thing. But again, what I've experienced over the years is it's more than a tongue to be trans, uh, interpreted. Yes, a tongue that someone understands rather. It's more than a tongue and interpretation. It's more than angelic tongues. It's more than a prayer language. It's just a shriek of ecstatic joy. I've seen that often with people who got radically saved. I'm, I'm coming into land. Uh, people who get radically saved from a super wild background. They don't have all the, I've learned at Sunday school, don't speak out, just sit down and keep quiet. They haven't learned that. God is here. God set me free. God is healing me. The sheer ecstatic joy that the God who saved me is here with me right now. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, I will land with this. Verse 50. Are you still with me? You got a couple of minutes? You got a couple of minutes booty power? Thank you, Chris. All right, verse 15. Not drunk as you suppose. Cyril of Jerusalem, in other words, he wrote in the first century. This is a beautiful quotation. Is it up there that I write it? It says, they are drunken, Cyril of Jerusalem, with sober drunkenness. That is deadly to sin. No, that's not the one. Is there, not, is, not, is there not a slide with this quote on? Apologize if I didn't do it. They're, not, they're drunken, but with a sober drunkenness, deadly to sin and life-giving to the heart. A drunkenness contrary to that of the body. For last causes forgetfulness. That life-giving, that sense of God causes forgetfulness, even what is known, but bestows knowledge where it is not known. I read that badly. Let me read it again. For last causes forgetfulness, even what is known, but bestows knowledge, even in what was not known. Now, folks, this is a very offensive thing to most of us, very ordinary, pleasant. I've got my Christianity together. Are you okay if God chooses to make someone drunk amongst us with a sober drunkenness? Now, like you, I've had my fair share of college drinking. And I know what someone looks like when they're drunk. And I have to tell you, I've seen people drunk like this in a way that I thought no person can act this good unless you are an A-list celebrity. I remember being in a meeting and an accountant of all things, I think it's God's sense of humor, was speaking and the next minute he froze. Froze. Now we were a little awkward like, dude, whatever, you know, carry on. But he froze. And the next minute he steps back from the pulpit and staggers like a college mate. Now it's a big problem because there's a stage there. 
he somehow stumbles his way off the stage and staggers his way down in front of everyone else. And I'm watching him closely because I am a closet cynic. But God took a cautious, conservative man and turned him inside out by his presence. But God is not limited to the measure of our personality nor limited by the expression of our culture. I think sometimes God just has fun. So what do we know? I'm landing with this. What do we know? What happens when the Spirit of God comes? Well, we know, number one, they received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Things changed. Peter walked in his shadow. People became whole. I want that. Sometimes a little ambitious. Sometimes just, oh God, I'm so sick of praying for people that don't get healed. I don't want to be at another hospital bed and someone dies. Please, Lord. Did your power come? Secondly, they spoke in other tongues that those people understood. Thirdly, they looked pretty drunk. So if you say to me, well, you've got to receive tongues to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, well, then you've got to get drunk too. They prophesied. And you know what's beautiful about that in this passage? It said their sons and daughters, breaking historical cultural protocol, the Spirit of God says, I will let men and women prophesy. And then if that wasn't enough, dreams and visions, young and old, breaking the protocol of a patriarchal culture. I love the work of the Spirit. And then last but certainly not least, it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Spirit, thank you for being gracious. I know I've preached long. But the Holy Spirit points us back to Jesus. That's his primary job. He doesn't want to be worshipped. He wants to be honoured, revered, respected, of course. But his role, John 14 tells us, is to point back to Jesus. And look at what happens here. There was Jesus in salvation, chapter 2, verse 21. There was Jesus in prophecy, chapter 2, verse 25. There was Jesus in history, chapter 2, verse 32. There was Jesus in community, chapter 2, 38 to 47. A lot of stuff I know. Well, what have I hoped for tonight? That somewhere in my stuttering words, there'd be something that begins to percolate in your heart and mine and in us as a community. Come, Holy Spirit. We want so much more of you. We want you to come amongst us. We want you to do this and more. We want to see people come to a living faith. We want to see the brokenhearted bound up. We want to see the lame walk, the blind see. We want these things to happen, but they cannot happen unless there is a growing tide, an increased tide of the Holy Spirit's presence amongst us. I'm asking you to invite that Holy Spirit to come amongst us. Would you do that with me? Holy Spirit, would you come?